Hello, my name is Thomas Rickert. I'm founder and owner of Rickert.net law firm in Bonn, a boutique type law firm in Germany. And you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to the 55th episode of IP Fridays. We just celebrated the second birthday of IP Fridays during a meetup during the inter-annual meeting in Orlando. And here are some of the people who attended. Hello, I'm Alex Butterman and you're not. This is IP Fridays. Welcome, I'm Eric Pelton of Eric M. Pelton & Associates in Falls Church, Virginia, and you are listening to IP Fridays. I'm Carrie Thompson, I'm with Barnes & Thornburg, and you are listening to IP Fridays. Hi, this is Ron Coleman, uh, speaking to you from the International Trademark Association. I'm a partner at Archer & Griner, and very honored to appear on IP Fridays. Hi, this is Deborah Lodge, I'm with Squire Patton Boggs, and you are listening to IP Fridays. Yeah, yes, hello, this is Brian Brocate, uh, uh, one of the guests on, uh, one of the former guests on IP Fridays, but also... Uh, our very good friend and our very good colleague Ken Suzanne, uh, a Gibney alumni, or sorry, Gibney alumnus, um, who who has left us but has gone and do wonderful things, and one of which is IP Fridays. Uh, Kenny, Ralph, congratulations. This is Christina Windsor, and I want to congratulate IP Fridays and thank them for this uh, wonderful event. And I wish you all the luck in another many many years of IP Fridays, more than onwards to a hundred. <laughs> 100 IP Fridays. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jerry Walder from Sanderson & Co. And you're listening to IP Fridays. Hey, this is Johnny Mack with Gibney, Anthony & Flaherty. And I listen to IP Fridays. Hi, I'm Martin Tongboy. I'm partner with Fleischmann Partner, Patent Attorneys in Cologne, Germany. And you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, my name is Pina Campagna. I'm with Carter, DeLuca, Farrell & Schmidt. And you're listening to IP Fridays. I'm Uri Fisher, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, I'm Mark Brown from Winkler Partners in Taiwan, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hi, I'm Celine Pruvez from RG Mark in France, and I'm happy with IP Fridays. Hi, this is Susan Goldsmith from McCarter in English, and you're listening to IP Fridays. If you want to be on the show, or if you know somebody who should be on the show, or if you have suggestions for topics, please let us know. Write us an email or leave us a voicemail on our website. We would be very happy to um, address your requests. Today we interview Thomas Rickert in Bonn. He is an attorney at law and very active in ICANN. And he will explain some of the recent issues with ICANN and explain ICANN in general. So if you are interested in domains, this will be a very interesting interview for you. Before we jump into the interview, I want to talk about an article that I found on another blog, the Fashion Law blog. And this article lists the fashion brands that are most active trademark lawsuit filing parties. 
the article appeared on May 23rd and both goes into the number of cases filed in the US and the damages awarded. So as for the number of um, cases filed, Coach is leading the list with 730 cases that were filed. Chanel came in second with 330 cases, then followed by Microsoft. Yes, you hear it right. Microsoft um, also files um, uh, lawsuits in fashion cases with 203 cases per year. Then Deckers is the following company that is the parent company of Ugboots with 164 cases. And after that came Louis Vuitton with 81 cases. If you look at the damages that were awarded, Chanel is leading the list with about 1 billion US dollars awarded. A close second is Burberry with Burberry Limited having um, been awarded 523 million US dollars and Burberry Limited UK being awarded 416.6 billion uh, million dollars. Gucci America Incorporated was awarded 207 million US dollars. Coach was awarded 180 million US dollars. Nike was awarded 170 million US dollars. And Converse was awarded 166 million US dollars. If you want to read the full story, you can go to www.ipfridays.com slash fashion lawsuits ipfridays.com slash fashion lawsuits one word so let's jump into the interview with thomas rickard i'm very excited to be joined by thomas rickard today if you don't know who tom is he is founder um, and managing partner of rickard.net uh, attorneys at law in bonn germany and uh, he is very engaged in ICANN and domain law and uh, thank you for being on the show thanks for having me so um, since you are so much involved in ICANN, can you tell our listeners a little bit uh, what ICANN is? Sure. ICANN is the acronym for the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. That's a non-for-profit non corporation in California. And that is actually the organization that takes care of developing policy for generic domain names like com, net and org, but they're also managing the root zone for all extensions, including country code, top-level domains, they're taking care of uh, internet protocol parameters and uh, IP addresses. Mm -hmm. And um, how do the different countries and industry players and uh, scientific organizations and so on have influence in ICANN? Well, ICANN is quite a complex species. It's an organization that uh, works on the basis of the so-called multi-stakeholder model. And that means that academia, industry, uh, as well as governments um, can um, join the table and join discussions on how we want the domain name system to work. Uh, but beyond that, ICANN has contractual relationships with both registries and registrars. Registry registries being the companies that operate a TLD and registrars who are basically selling TLDs to end customers. Right. And um, so far, um, and maybe you can elaborate a little bit on this, uh, ICANN has been, um, some people say, under control of the US government. And now um, ICANN is in the process of uh, becoming more independent from the US government. Can you explain? 
Sure. I think we should go back in history a little bit so uh, the listeners can follow us um, more easily. Uh, originally, the, the domain name system was administered by the University of California by a nice gentleman by the name of John Postel. And um, uh, there were some issues when the domain name system became more and more popular, so the university uh, was sued by, by uh, entities that were not happy with uh, how the DNS was operated. And then the Clinton administration um, uh, established ICANN or encouraged the establishment of ICANN, um, uh, like almost 20 years back. But um, although ICANN was a private organization where the policy should be developed based on the multi-stakeholder model where everyone can chime in and bring forward their arguments, the U.S. administration still kept an eye on it over the, the so-called IANA functions. Um, so basically they said, since this is such a new approach, we want to see whether it's going to work or not for the initial couple of years. So U.S. government oversight was always planned to be a, a temporary thing. But then um, uh, the Bush administrations did not offer uh, releasing U.S. government oversight, but the, the Obama administration uh, in March 2014 made an announcement that they would um, uh, end their authority over the IANA functions, which are critical particularly for uh, the root zone management as well as um, protocol parameters and IP addresses, uh, if a good enough proposal is made by the global multi-stakeholder community. So they attached some, some conditions to that, so they said that whatever proposal is made must maintain the openness of the Internet. It must preserve security, stability and resiliency. And we must also ensure that the multi-stakeholder model is, is enhanced with this, as well as preventing the IANA functions to being controlled by one or multiple governments. And ICANN, or the ICANN community, I should rather say, has been working very, very hard over the last one and a half years approximately to come up with a proposal that has recently been submitted to the U.S. government uh, during the ICANN meeting in Marrakesh. So this is now being um, uh, vetted by NTIA, that is the authority in the U.S. that's responsible for this. And we will now see whether the U.S. government thinks that this is good enough a proposal so that the IANA functions contract, that's the legal vehicle uh, under which um, U.S. oversight is, is exercised, can expire at the end of September this year. And um, can you briefly explain what your role in this whole process is? Sure. There are three IANA functions. One has to do with IP addresses, one with protocol parameters, and one with managing the root zone, which is essential for, um, uh, for having uh, domain names resolving in the, in the DNS. Um, so three groups were formed that worked on proposals on how these three technical functions can be uh, operated in the absence of the historical relationship with the U.S. government. But then there is a fourth area, and that's accountability, because the U.S. government said that ICANN needs to be accountable to the global community. And there's one additional working group, which is uh, uh, called CCWG, that's the Cross-Community Working Group on Enhancing ICANN Accountability. And I'm one of the three co-chairs that uh, are responsible for this group. And that's a group that is uh, um, uh, where we have more than 200 members and participants 
from all world regions, and that includes academia, industry representatives, um, uh, intellectual property uh, advocates, as well as government, relation, uh, government uh, representatives. Wow, so you have about uh, 200 people to manage and uh, find agreement with? Exactly, that was quite a challenge and even beyond we wanted to get the buy-in of the global community. So we've been working very hard, we had um, endless phone calls every week, at least two hours. Uh, we exchanged only on our list, and that's only the accountability list, we've exchanged roughly 14,000 emails over the last uh, 15 months. Uh, we've worked on reports that we put out for public comment so that everyone at the global level could chime in and make themselves heard. We, um, we improved the report so that ultimately we had a report that our group was happy with, that the so-called chartering organizations in the ICANN community were happy with, so they approved it, and the ICANN board was happy enough with it to uh, pass it on to the US government. And that's been an unprecedented effort. Uh, everyone has been working um, extremely hard and looking at the diversity of the interests that have been uh, represented in there. I think it's, it's, uh, it's very remarkable uh, and, and a victory of the multi-stakeholder model that we managed to come up with this 350-page-long report describing the post-IANA transition accountability architecture in ICANN. Um, you briefly mentioned in a side note that it's important to get this done by September and you also said the Obama administration is quite favorable of the change. Um, can you explain like why is it so important to have this uh, decided by September? The, the contract between ICANN and the US government ends the end of September. Oh yes. So there is, it, it would be good um, if all the reviews of the proposal and the approval of the proposal were conducted prior to the end of this contract so that ICANN and NTIA don't need to negotiate an extension of that contract. So the easiest uh, uh, option would be that the contract can just expire, that there are no issues with, with Congress in the US, that NTIA approves it, um, uh, so that uh, we don't have to go into overtime. But let me also be perfectly clear, it would not be the end of the world if we had to go into overtime. So NTIA has always made it abundantly clear that um, there is no linkage to the end of this, this contract. But certainly there are political as well as practical reasons why it would be uh, um, you know, good for the community to get the transition done before the contract expires. Maybe not all administrations would be as favorable to the change as the Obama administration. That's correct. And um, I think we shouldn't underestimate the, the high symbolic value of, uh, uh, of the IANA functions, not only in the US, but, but at the global, levels, uh, global level. A lot of governments, as well as other players, are looking at this project at the moment because um, um, they, they see a high uh, uh, value in, in uh, how ICANN and how the IANA functions are being run. Um, so, you know, politically this is quite a sensitive topic. Now to a completely different topic. Um, I want to explore why you are so um, keen and interested in, uh, in, in engaging in ICANN. Sure. I've been working as a lawyer in the domain space um, since 98. So I'm following this, uh, all this very, very closely, but I find it 
particularly interesting to join ICANN because that's where the policy is made. The recent extension of um, of the top-level domain names under the framework of the new GTLD program in ICANN, that's a historic event. If you look at the number of, of uh, generic top-level domains we have, that has hardly grown. We only saw the introduction of .info, .biz and a few others. But if you look at the, at the, at the enormous growth of Internet users at the global level, the namespaces haven't grown with it. So mm. if you've ever tried to look to register an attractive domain name, I think you'd be hardly able to register it, but you would need to buy it at the secondary market or you would need to find another name for your company. And therefore, I think it is, it is just uh, um, appropriate for such a unique resource to be opened up. And that's not only to have more names that people are forced to register their trademarks defensively under, but let's look at the fact that we have internationalized domain names, non-ASCII script domain names. So the Western world, I think, has been quite conceited and arrogant in forcing the rest of the world's users to change the keyboard if they wanted to type in a domain name. So with the new GTLD program in the generic namespace, for the first time in the history of the, the Internet, we, we allow users to use non-ASCII.non-ASCII domain names mm -hmm. in Chinese and Cyrillic or in other scripts. And I think that is required in order to allow for growth, economic growth in all world regions. So that's, that's one thing. But then also um, the, the extensions that we see launched, that have been launched over the last couple of months and they continue to be launched, allow for users, allow for companies to be more specific in what they want to convey with their online presence. So if you're in horse trading, you can now register a .horse domain name. If you're a software engineer, you can use a .software domain name. If you want to do, do e-commerce, you will soon be able to register a .shop domain name and many, many, many others. If you're a lawyer, you can use .law or .legal or .avogado. So um, you, you can point your user, your target group, into the direction of what they can expect as an offer made available under the domain name. And I think this diversity is not mandatory for people to use, but it's a great option for companies working in the online space because you don't have windows that you can dress nicely so that to, to, to attract people. In many cases, the domain name and how you can be found online is the entry point for people to make business. Mm -hmm. Can you briefly talk about uh, online reputation in connection with the different domains and top-level domains? Reputation is, is very important and we see a lot of counterfeiting online and, and other bad stuff going on. And I also think that the expansion of the TLD space that happened at ICANN is only the beginning of a long-term process where more and more companies and brand owners will try to get their own brand as a TLD. You know, dot brand domain names, they're not used too much at the moment. But they, for the first time in, in, in history of the DNS, they allow for companies to entirely control their own namespace. They can set up the policies. They can establish who is an eligible registrant and who is not. So if you have your .brand domain name, you can say that only you as a company can own it. You can say that only you and your franchisees can, 
potentially own it. And then you can convey, communicate to your customers that they should only trust information that comes from that specific namespace. So we don't see that effect too much today, but I think that it's going to be an ongoing trend that we will see more of that in, in the midterm and long-term future, that actually companies are going to control their own namespace and build new trust relationships with their target groups. Mm -hmm. Um, there have been several tools to um, fight against people who are registering domains to hurt the original trademark owners. For example, let's say a domain uh, by fakebmw.com or something. Um, and there are several tools. So there is, for example, UDRP or there's the new trademark clearinghouse. Can you talk about these different kinds of tools? Sure. There have been a lot of anxieties by both trademark owners as well as governments that the expansion of the namespace uh, by, by way of ICANN's new GTLD program would cause a disaster for trademark owners in terms of costs for defensive registrations as well as costs and effort to manage cyber squatters and prevent bad things from happening. And therefore ICANN made it mandatory for all new GTLD operators to deploy certain new policies to help preventing bad things from happening. One of that is UDRP. They have to use UDRP as well as leg legacy TLDs. Then there's a new thing which is called URS, the Uniform Rapid Suspension System, that allows for the applicant to use a low-cost, very formalized and expeditious procedure to get domain names freezed. So if they find a, a website where fraudulent products are being sold, where, uh, where counterfeited products are being sold, they might not be interested in obtaining the domain name, which would be the outcome of the UDRP, but they just want the abuse to stop from happening. So they can use the URS and then the DNS is interrupted so that the domain name, uh, that the website that was available under the domain name where the counterfeited goods were offered is no longer available. That's mandatory for all new extensions. Then we have the trademark clearinghouse where trademark owners can get registered and they get notified in case a domain name is registered that is identical to the trademark that's registered in the central register. So this and a few others like PICDRP and RDDRPs there, you know, I don't want to go into all the niceties, but there are a couple of new policies that are that have been implemented in order to prevent abuse in the new namespaces. Let's talk a little more about the this new URS thing. Uh, how old is it? And um, you already told us a little bit um, like about the technical details, how that works. But uh, how is the process? Like how old is it and how would be the process for the trademark owner? The URS has been introduced with the launch of the new, T, new uh, GTLDs. So it has been developed in the framework of development of the policies for the new GTLD program. And um, it has been launched with the first TLD that basically has been launched. It is a very formalized procedure where you enter the domain name, the owner, you can use one procedure to go after multiple domain names that are owned by the same entity, or you can otherwise uh, use it for multiple domain names that, that are infringing upon your, your rights. And then you, you trigger the, the procedure with the uh, dispute resolution provider. The registrar would get notified and they would need to lock the domain name so that it can't be transferred elsewhere by the, uh, by the registrant. 
And then if you're successful, the domain name is frozen, let's say. The domain name, um, the, the name server entry is manipulated so that it doesn't resolve to the original website, but there would just be a notification that the domain name has been suspended under the, under the URS. So, yeah. so where would this um, request be made? You would go, you know, for, for UDRP, you have a couple of dispute res resolution providers such as mm -hmm. WIPO and sure. National Arbitration Forum. I mean the URS. And you also have, um, mm -hmm. you also have dispute resolution providers for the URS. Mm -hmm. For a, each domain. And how would you find them? You need to go to a dispute resolution provider, a URS provider. So you can go to the Asian Domain Name Dispute Resolution Center or to the National Arbitration Forum. And if this was too fast, you can just go to ICANN icawn.org and search for URS provider and you find them there. Perfect. So uh, let's move over to uh, the last uh, but a new topic. Um, you have been involved in making the policies for ICANN. Uh, can you explain a little bit? Well, not that I did the policies by myself, but um, I was, uh, until I was term limited, I was on the so-called GNSO Council, which is the Council of the Generic Name Supporting Organization. And that is quite fascinating because that's the place where policies for generic top-level domain names are being made. So today we take for granted that you can transfer a domain name from one registrar to the other. But actually there are policies behind that that need to be agreed on and that need to be followed by all the contractual partners that make uh, domain names available to Internet users. So I've been on that committee for four years and I'm still following developments in the GNSO quite closely because that's where you find registries, registrars, intellectual property uh, um, uh, advocates, uh, internet users, both commercial as well as private internet user representatives, and they come together and develop those policies. And at the moment they've started working on policy for the next round of new GTLDs. So we can expect the namespace to be further opened to be further broadened more opportunities for users as well as for trademark owners and i think that all those that have uh, a company that have a strong brand and those that have not applied for their own extension during this round should watch out for developments in that space because uh, that's going to offer new opportunities to get your own tld in the years to come yeah, this has been a very interesting interview. Thank you, Tom, for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. 
None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.